in a country that's been in war for decades against all sorts of races. They fought the Cambodians, the Chinese, the French, the Japanese. Continual war. We were just another part of interruption of foreigners in their country. They didn't want us there. Today, Philip Chin Kwan teaches Goju Ryu Karate in Hornsby. In 1970, he served a year in Vietnam in a unit called Psychological Operations. I was actually a conscript. I was called up at the age of 20 as part of national service. I got a call up notice in early 69. Being Victorian, I did um, 10 weeks recruit training at Pakapanyal. Uh, very harsh, very strange because I'd never been in the military and the method of training was to really mentally and physically change you, make you fit, make you more responsible, work as a team member and become military minded. Well, I didn't know about Vietnam. They didn't explain it to you in any great detail. In fact, they virtually avoided it because most of our NCOs and officers were Vietnam veterans. Australian soldiers were very well trained in jungle warfare. We did Kanunga training up at far north Queensland before we left from Vietnam. And that area is almost identical terrain-wise, climate-wise, foliage, and that is very similar to Vietnam. So we'd already got an aspect of that before leaving Australia. We caught a, a, a military flight to, to Saigon. As we are coming into land, because we were arriving in the daytime, we could look out the windows and see the terrain all around the, the military base. It was a huge area. And there's just so much activity going on. You see all these bomb craters, they hadn't filled them in. And the Vietnamese were actually growing rice in these muddy bomb craters. When we landed at Tonsonut Air Base, it was just full military situation. There was army vehicles, there was jeeps, there was troops marching across the tarmac, there was planes taking on and off, jets, phantom fighter bombers, helicopter sticks flying in, like in groups of four to five choppers flying in and out, bringing in troops and equipment. Everywhere you looked, there was military, but it wasn't just mainly Americans, but there was Thais, there was South Koreans, there was the Vietnamese, of course, Filipino soldiers. They gave us a packed lunch of stale sandwiches and a, and a bottle of drink or a can of drink. Left a 44-gallon drum in the and says, put your scraps in there. And most of us, by that stage, weren't any, you know, have one bite of the sandwich and throw the rest in the bin. Double doors just flung open and we had this big rash of 20 or 30 Vietnamese women and kids come running at us. And of course we sort of taken back, so we stepped back away from the drum. And all I did was they zeroed in on the 44-gallon up into it and started fighting over the food scraps. And they're pulling each other apart and throwing each other back, trying to get at the food. And one of the kids, maybe six, seven years old, walked up to one of my mates next to me, yanked on his sleeve and handed him Playboy magazine while he munched on this half-eaten apple with his other hand. And with a big smile on his face while he's chewing, he's sticking this Playboy magazine into the nose of my mate. And it sort of then clicked to us that these people thought more about their survival on a day-to-day -day situation, getting food into their stomach. They didn't care about a Playboy magazine. It had no meaning to them. We were part of the Australian Task Force base at Nui Dab. So I got deployed to a unit called D&E Platoon, which is an independent infantry platoon, which works entirely separate from battalions. It's only one platoon, a few officers and NCOs, a couple of sergeants. Because science was what we call a composite unit. It was made up of guys from different corps. We had engineers, we had transport, service corps, artillery, tankies, uh, engineers. And there was only three of us out of our platoon who were infantry. And we stayed in one hoochie, in one tent. 
I was always fully armed. I, I, I carried an SLR and I carried a M79 grenade launcher, and that was my standard weapon. But I also carried grenades. I even had any tank rockets in the in the in the trunk in the back of my Land Rover. So if I come up against it, like a bunker system, I'm not going to fire him with a rifle. I'll use the anti-tank rocket. I was in I was in a village called Swen Mok, which is east of Nui Dat, about an hour and a half drive. We'd been invited by the local district commander, the Vietnamese commander, to have a few beers with him, which we promptly said, yes, we'll come. We're sitting down just about to nick the first bottle, and all of a sudden we, we had these all one explosions next door. Next door was down was a Vietnamese mortar battery set up, and they were getting incoming rounds. And they killed two of the guys and wounded quite a few, and it shut the whole battery down, which means they couldn't fire back. We went to a stand two and we got into the bunkers, which we were receiving small arms fire aimed at us. So we're ducking behind the cover. I'm taught never to shoot unless you know what you're shooting at, so I'm sticking my head up trying to identify who was shooting or what, for what reason. And what happened was we realised that the VC had captured the compound which was being built about two kilometres outside the village. It was still under construction and they'd put up a couple of watchtowers and barbed wire entanglements and it was being manned by a group of Vietnamese locals. So then we got on our radio and we called for Australian reinforcements from the Horseshoe, which was a fire support base nearby. And they sent out a, a Centurion tank and eight, two APCs and a re-reaction platoon of Australian infantry. When we came out with the tanks, they'd all gone. The enemy had hit that compound, decimated them, and then hit us and kept us from moving out. They'd killed six of the defenders. The commander, who was a lieutenant of the company, had put his own pistol to his head and shot himself. He left his wife and two kids alive. In a war situation, and this happens quite often, when the enemy attack and they take control of an area, they'll torture through fear and through intimidation. They'll kill the leader of the group, whether it's a headman or the senior officer. They'll disembowel him, they'll behead him in front of the family, and or they'll rape and kill the kids and the, and the wife. Now, his wife and his two daughters were still alive. One of the daughters had shrapnel wounds from a grenade explosion. The two watchtowers of the compound had been blown up. There was two gun uh, machine gun emplacements that were destroyed and the weapons were missing. So we assumed the enemy came in, grabbed the weapons and took off. That's the way they used to fight. They used to come in three different directions, hit simultaneously, confuse the hell out of the defenders and then overtake the compound. I walked into a, uh, what was left of a building. The roof was all caved in. It was still late at night, it was after midnight. And I walked in and I'm searching, I didn't have a torch with me, and I kicked something and I thought it was a can of food. I went to reach down and pick it up. I picked it up and shone a light on it. It was an unexploded Chai Com grenade, Chinese communist grenade. A lot of weapons and, and ordnance that the enemy used, they bury them, they hide during the day and they dig them up when they want to use them. Now if they've been buried for a long time, moisture can get in. What happens, they'd thrown this grenade in the building, the pin had been pulled, which means it was active, but the plunger got stuck through rust. So it hadn't detonated, but it was live, and I'd kicked it. So if I'd stood on it, it probably would have gone off. And as I backed up, I backed up into the blast wall, and I put my hand down behind me. As I backed up in, I felt two more cans. And my sergeant had then come in behind me and shone the line and just back off real easy and lift your hands up. And as I lifted up, I looked down, there was two more Chicom grenades. There was a smattering of unexploded ordnance in that building and I was there searching around in, in half dark. So we backed out and we said, well, we can't leave the survivors in the buildings. We had to move them out. 
We'd already brought the bodies and we laid them out on the ground and we could only cover them with a bit of straw matting because I was blowing up, bodies missing, the limbs missing, the guts hanging out. We had to bring the injured people in the middle of the compound so we could treat them. Meanwhile, the women had gone into a whaling situation. They were praying for the bodies of the dead, who were probably their relatives, their husband or their son. And the kids were crying and were bandaging them up. And we had to lie them out. And the only way I could look after them was put them in the middle of the compound in the open, lay out sheets of cardboard packing from the, the storehouse, and then we did a search of the area. And because I had Polaroid cameras, one of the uh, radiation guys said, we need photographs of the bodies take take back to identify. So I had to take photos of them with this Polaroid camera, which meant I had to stand over it a foot and a half away and then lie on my side and take profile shots with the Polaroid, because that's the most immediate way of getting photographs. I slept next to two bodies. The smell was unbelievable. Come sun up with the sun hitting the bodies. There was a lot of death and killing and destruction, unfortunately. And when you consider most of us were around 21 at the time, and a lot of us hadn't been to Southeast Asia to come into that area and then know that you had to live through 12 months of this. It's a little wonder that most of us got post-traumatic. In a country that's been in war for decades against all sorts of races, they fought the Cambodians, the Chinese, the French, the Japanese during World War II. Continual war. We were just another part of interruption of foreigners in their country. They didn't want us there. They, they, you could tell by the way they acted. They, you're walking in the village, they turn on you, they spit at you and walk away. And you couldn't do it, you couldn't walk up and slap them or anything. You're just sort of thinking, well, why are they mad at ministers? They're not mad at us, they're just mad at the whole situation. They're stuck in the middle of fighting between the Vietnamese, the VC, the Australians, the Americans. We're bombing the hell out of them during the daytime and sweeping through their villages and just relocating them to some barren land area taken away from their, their livelihood and their villages because they're in the middle of the fighting. And when they come back, the place is burnt down and leveled. And at night time, the VC are coming in and threatening them and kidnapping some of the able-bodied men and women and things like that, taking their food supplies, threatening if you don't tell us what's happening in the next 24 hours, they'll come in and shoot your husband. So they're caught right in the middle of everything. And they lost millions of people during the war. People don't realise that. There was more civilians killed during the Vietnam War than the military. All I know was when we came home, I was ostracised in public. They wouldn't let us go into pubs. They knew we were military. They called us names. They accused us of being mass murderers and things like that. And we couldn't understand why. And that hurt us for years. I could never march in an ANZAC or join an RSL for over 20 years. I didn't march till 1987 at the, the Welcome Home Parade in Melbourne. They had one in Sydney and they had one in Melbourne. And that was 16 years after I came home. And some of the guys I'd reacquainted myself with were guys I thought had died over there. I've only been a member of the sub-branch of the RSL since 2015. It's taken me all this time to actually come up because I was welcomed by the group. Produced by Neil Ashworth with support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Original music by Clive Lane.